0: You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Last year, the American Academy of Neurology released new guidelines for determining brain death in adults. These new guidelines give a step-by-step process for making this decision. Dr. Aleko Vedix, Professor of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Chair of the Division of Critical Care joins me to discuss brain death and organ donation on NeuroFrontiers. Dr. Vedix, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you very much. Dr. Vedix, why did the AAN decide to update the guidelines to determine brain death in adults? The first
1: guidelines were in 1995, and we thought it was about time to revisit the guidelines. In that time span, multiple articles have appeared and new studies have appeared that we thought would be important to review, And in addition, we recently reviewed hospital policies of 50 major hospitals in the United States and found that there were some discrepancies in their policies, which was another incentive for us to review that and to see how we could make it more uniform.
0: Can you describe the new guidelines for our listeners?
1: Yeah, the guidelines are more or less an extension of the 1995 uh, guidelines, Essentially, they are the same. There were several questions we asked, and we tried to answer those questions with evidence based methods. The five questions we asked patients who fulfill the clinical criteria of brain death were are they able to recover brain function? And is there any evidence of that since the guidelines were published in 1995? And using that as a parameter. The second question was, what is the adequate observation period to make absolutely sure that uh, neurologic function has permanently ceased? Are there complex uh, motor movements that falsely suggest retained brain function that sometimes can be observed in brain death, and how do we interpret that? What is the safety of techniques for determining apnea? And finally... Are there a new test or ancillary test that could identify patients with brain death? And those were the major questions we asked, and we did an evidence-based evaluation of the literature and came to multiple conclusions. The guidelines basically has found that we are clinically able, and that may not surprise anyone, but we're clinically able to make an accurate assessment in patients and that a single neurologic examination is sufficient to make that assessment. There should be sufficient time and observation to make your first, or do your first examination. But when that is done in an accurate manner, and there are uh, several techniques to do that, if it's done in an accurate manner, this should suffice, and the physician should meet with the family to make uh, further decisions. The guidelines emphasize basically that uh, most of the time should be spent uh, by physicians to find out why the patient is brain-dead, and actually most of the time should be spent to look for confounders. You could actually say that most of the time should be spent in finding out that the patient is not brain-dead, and that is emphasized in the guidelines in a more accurate way than uh, it was done in 1995. The literature is very clear that if we have done that examination in an accurate fashion, there is no case described of recovery and uh, we can be sure that a clinical examination is sufficient. There is no need for ancillary tests to determine that a patient is brain death. A clinical examination should uh, suffice.
0: Dr. Vedix, you mentioned the idea of a single examination. Now, that For many people, that's a major departure than their individual hospital's criteria. Do you find this to be a major change in the criteria going with a single exam rather than a second examination, either 6, 12, or 24 hours afterward?
1: It could be interpreted as such, but in general, you would want to think that one examination suffice. Why would you want to spend a longer time and do a second examination? What is, I think, is important is that brain death examination should not be rushed, and one should spend adequate time to come to the conclusion that a brain death examination can be done, and that you have excluded all major confounders. Once that is done, there is no need to do a second examination, because doing a neurologic examination that determines brain death is in itself sufficient, and there is has never been any patient who has regained any neurologic function with repeat examination. There has not been any patient who has improved after any medical intervention or surgical intervention after this neurologic examination has been performed. One comprehensive examination should suffice. And the problem that we have identified is that hospital policies would extend the period of observation To 12 hours or 24 hours or even longer, that time of observation is in an essentially unstable, dead patient who potentially could become an organ donor. And even a short period of observation is put into a hospital guideline. For example, in New York, a six hour interval was put into the guideline, which led to loss of approximately 13 to 14 percent of organ donors due to premature cardiac arrest. So in other words, if you would introduce a prolonged period of observation while knowing that there's not going to be any change, that you could potentially jeopardize uh, organ donation in a very significant manner. And we found that if, even if you would say, let's take six hours, the practice would uh, show that, that six hours easily would become 36 hours, thus again just jeopardizing the patient.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss brain death and organ donation is Dr. Aleko Vedix, professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and chair of the Division of Critical Care. Dr. Vedix, I understand that developing any set of guidelines is an arduous process and takes a lot of steps. About how long did it take for your group to develop these guidelines regarding brain death?
1: Yeah, so the guidelines were developed in 1995, and we reviewed the literature. It took about two years for us to come to a final document that was published in the Journal of Neurology. And in that two years, The guidelines were reviewed by multiple neurologists and in multiple committee meetings to come to a consensus that is the one that is currently published in neurology.
0: You also included a checklist to help doctors determine if a patient has reached brain death. Why did you feel this was necessary?
1: I think, in general, we think that a checklist could reduce errors and that's been proven in other situations. Uh, We don't know if it would uh, would help in this particular setting, but we thought it would be useful to list the number of assessments that are needed to diagnose brain death. If you list the number of uh, tests and assessments uh, that has to be done before you can safely say that a patient meets the criteria, you will come up with about 25 tests uh, and assessments that are needed to do that assessment much different than a cardiologist who comes at the bedside, touches the carotid uh, or listens to the heart and de- determines that the patient has died. This is a fairly elaborate process that takes time, may take up to an hour to do. Therefore, it's, it's not something that can be easily dismissed and it's not a simple test to do and therefore a checklist could help physicians in looking at what components of the neurologic examination needs to be addressed. Um, I don't know if a checklist would uh, increase accuracy. We don't have that data available to us, but uh, we thought it would be a useful tool.
0: Dr. Vedix, determining brain death and organ retrieval are two independent processes, and often this is a very controversial topic. How do you approach families to let them know that you're treating them as separate processes?
1: The controversy is probably non-existent. Physicians who are treating patients who have a catastrophic disorder mostly already know that the moment the patient is admitted to the hospital, that the patient has had a very severe injury. Brain death diagnosis is usually already apparent in the first 24 to 76 hours. And as you can imagine, this is only in a fraction of patients who are entering an intensive care unit. In fact, it's about 10% of patients with a major neurologic injury that uh, fulfill the criteria of brain death. But once they do, there is an an obligation of physicians to come to that conclusion and to determine that the patient uh, is not here anymore. Then, completely separate from any decision that has been made, Uh, an organ transplant procurement agency will be uh, notified, and they, uh, at least in the United States, they will discuss organ donation.
0: The recent use of therapeutic hypothermia has resulted in a change in some policies. Has it affected your policies on determining brain death?
1: Uh, Absolutely. The introduction of therapeutic hypothermia, and uh, let me explain what that means. These are patients who have been admitted to a coronary care unit uh, after cardiopulmonary resuscitation. We know that cooling them down to about 33 degrees Celsius could potentially improve their outcome. Uh, Most of these patients are comatose, remain comatose after resuscitation, and are cooled down to that degree. With that, there is a batch of sedative drugs, paralytic agents, as well as opioids that are necessary to reduce shivering, uh, but also to introduce sedation to that patient. Brain death determination in that particular setting is probably not warranted, and we should probably argue against that practice. The reason is that... When the body gets cooled down, the metabolites of the sedative agents and opioids will hang around for quite some time and therefore will remain a confounder for quite some time. It's probably impossibility to do that in that particular uh, setting. Now, fortunately, uh, we know that uh, the vast majority of patients who are comatose after cardiopulmonary arrest do not fulfill the criteria of brain death. It's about... 4% 4% of those patients who fulfill the criteria of brain death for the simple reason is that when there is a significant anoxia to the brain, the brainstem most of the time is spared and the patients do not fulfill the criteria. So we would not probably, in the most instances, not expect the patient to become brain deaf. Uh, doing the examination in these patients who have therapeutic hyperthermia, is, I think, is concerning. And the concerning part is that even if the patient is rewarmed, that many of these sedative drugs may still play a role and could confound in neurologic examination.
0: Is there a period of time after the patient is rewarmed where do you think it would be acceptable to determine brain death, say, a week after?
1: I don't know that. We don't know when we can examine those patients uh, accurately, and I would not go ahead and do that unless there is um, evidence that the patient has had very minimal administration of drugs and that they cannot be considered confounders. So I would just not declare them brain death. I think that would be just a bad practice and could lead to significant errors.
0: Based on our discussion today, it seems that the brain death guidelines in individual institutions are becoming more of a dynamic document that may be reviewed, preferably on a regular basis, maybe annually, because of these new therapeutic interventions. Would you recommend that hospitals review these more regularly than they have in the past?
1: I think they should because we found that if you would review the hospital guidelines in, let's say, the 50 most prominent institutions in the United States, we found differences in how patients are examined and how their criteria are. Not necessarily that there are differences in the major parts of the examination and looking for confounders and doing an appropriate neurologic examination and apnea test, but simple adjustments that could not only make it more complicated or perhaps introduce errors. And so I would think that the guidelines, uh, the American Academy of Neurology guidelines, should be a template for many hospitals and should be used to review it on a regular basis. And I agree, there are changes in medicine that could make it more difficult for us to assess these patients. We talked about therapeutic hyperthermia. We can expect more patients to be on ECMO, which introduce another degree of complexity. So when medicine become more complex, you could expect more confounders, and guidelines should reflect that.
0: I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Aleko Vedix, professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and chair of the Division of Critical Care. Dr. Vedix, thanks again for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers. Thank you very much. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.